you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be finishing uh, our brief little series in this amazing chapter. So let's start off with uh, just a series of questions uh, and see if you can follow along. First and foremost is the question that I think plagues all of us and perhaps is hardest to answer is what do you fear most? Particularly what kind of suffering most troubles you, whether it is being experienced now or whether you just foresee it coming or you fear it coming? Is it disease, persecution, condemnation, false accusation, rejection, exposure, loneliness, loss, lack of control, failure? Did you even know those are all things you could fear? Now that you're scared. In what do you put your confidence to confront such things? Where do you find the power to conquer these kinds of things? Do you trust in your own ability to understand? Do you hope in your own capacity to achieve and work through it? Do you lean on your own intuition to make decisions? Do you look... For strength in yourself or somewhere else. And I know that many of you are like, oh, I know, we're not supposed to look in ourselves. But what do you really do? I'll be honest, most of the time I'm very self-dependent. Until I fall flat on my face and realize that doesn't always work very well. Now, though it can be a very effective tool... When you sparingly, as an English teacher, I actually usually instructed students not to start their essays with a list of questions. It's like the worst thing to do, actually, what I just did. So you're welcome. But the reason I did it is because as you come to a conclusion of this chapter in Romans 8, that's what Paul does. He asks like seven different questions. And Paul has a tendency to do this throughout Romans in particular, but at different places in his letters, he's asked question after question, and they're rhetorical questions. Now, questions are rhetorical when they either don't have an answer, or the answer is so obvious it doesn't need to be spoken. The one being asked the rhetorical question isn't actually expected to discover something new as much as they're expected to remember something that they already know to be true. Rhetorical questions. Now, Romans chapter 8, if you've spent time with us or if you've read the chapter, it's not that long, you can do it at any point. It's full of truths, powerful truths about what it means to be in Christ. And these are truths that we need to believe and we need to remember and read often because we forget so often. According to the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, to be in Christ is more than just being kind of into Christ. Yeah, I like him. He's a good teacher. You'd be hard pressed to find somebody that doesn't have some kind of basic affection or respect for Jesus Christ. They may not believe He's Lord. They may not believe He rose from the dead. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm kind of into Christ. Christ's a cool dude. It doesn't even mean to be in Christianity. Many people call themselves Christian. It is a label that 
in many ways has been so overused as to perhaps lose its meaning. But to be in Christ is what I believe is the language of relational intimacy with God. To be in Christ, it's the language of of heart identity. It's the language of eternal destiny. To be in Christ. This is why Paul echoes in his letter to the Colossians what he has written in Romans chapter 8. Notice what he writes. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, so he's speaking to people who would identify themselves as Christians, followers of Jesus, believers in Jesus. He said, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. What a powerfully vague statement, right? But you're like, man, that's that seems like really important. I'm, I'm hidden with Christ. But he goes even further. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Right? Talking about his return. What does it mean to be a Christian? If we want to use that term. Christ is your life. And although we may not fully know what that means. We know it means something. And we know that for someone who says, Christ is my life, is going to look very different than someone who does not say that. You know, Paul actually never uses the word Christian. He always is using in Christ. To be in Christ. To be hidden in Christ. Christ who is your life. Romans chapter 8 uses about a thousand words to explain those two words. In Christ. I would say that's the heart of Romans chapter 8. He begins and ends this chapter the exact same way. It's interesting. The very first verse, Romans 8.1, tells us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And the very last verse, of Romans chapter 8, tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. It's like, in Christ, in Christ, what does it mean to be in Christ? There was nothing more important to the Apostle Paul than to be in Christ. And that very truth, whatever it might mean, and I think you need all of Romans 8 to explain everything that that means, but that one powerful truth, you know what helped him endure? A life that was full of loss with joy. A life that was full of loss with joy. That began and ended with persecution and beheading. Writing in a Philippian jail, this is what he wrote. He's, I count everything as loss. And right prior to this, he named all the things that he lost. Reputation, Comfort. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, poop, literally, 
in order what? I'll count that all as loss. In order what? I may gain Christ and be found in Him. I may just be found in Him. Being found in Christ is where we will actually discover confidence to confront some of the things that we talked about in the beginning. Being in Christ is where we actually find the power to overcome all things. Whether it be anxiety, whether it be calamity, whether it be anything in between. Let's look at Romans 8, these last verses. We'll begin, I'm going to go through kind of systematically a couple verses at a time. So beginning in verse 31 of Romans chapter 8, the last part of this chapter, it says this. What, shall, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Okay. Now, the first question, so I said there's seven questions that he asks, and I'll kind of go through all of them, but combine some of them. He asks us, how are we going to respond to all these things? And the things that he is referring to are basically all the things he's written in Romans up to this point. And it's not just Romans 8, but it's all of Romans 1 through 8, and then it is Romans 8, and then it's particularly what he wrote in the last few verses that we read last week, 29 and 30, where listed a lot of things, glorious things, wonderful things. Specifically, it's Everything that Paul has used to describe a person that is saved by grace through faith in Christ. He's declared what it means to be set in Christ, to be found in Christ, to be put in Christ by God. Some of the things include that we are free from condemnation in Christ. We are right now free from condemnation in Christ. He said that we are set free in Christ from sin and death. He has said in this one chapter, we are made clean or righteous in Christ. He has said that we can please God in Christ. He has said that we are adopted as sons and daughters in Christ, brought into His family. He has said that we are made heirs with Christ. He has said in these last few verses of 29 and 30 that we were chosen in Christ, that we were called by Christ, that we were justified through Christ to be conformed to Christ and promised to be glorified like Christ at the return of Christ. I wonder what is most important to Paul. Jesus is his life. So Paul asks after having read all these things, and hopefully we've read them many times and, and meditated on them and thought about them, he asks, so what are we, knowing all of this, what are we going to say? How are we going to respond to these great spiritual truths? It's rhetorical. The answer is obvious. But he answers with another question. What does he say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Knowing all this, like if God is for us, who can be against us, right? So I want you to think for a second. It's really maybe hard to 
to press into this and meditate on it because our minds are so easily distracted. That's why we can barely sit for a five-minute prayer like, okay, what's next? We are so distracted. Meditate. Think. Your heavenly Father is for you. Let's take it a little bit further. The creator of the universe is on your side. Almighty God cares for you. And he has your back whether you fall in life or life falls on you. He's for you. I've heard it said that we often believe God the Father is frowning behind the smile of Christ. That's not true. Paul says here, look, if everything is for us, then nothing can be against us. And Paul's going to offer proof of this. He's like, let, let me prove it to you. But let's just pause for a second before we look at that proof. Because if these truths, everything that we've heard about what God has done for us in Christ, how God has placed us in Christ, what God has blessed us with in Christ, if these truths reveal how much God is for us, why is that so hard to believe sometimes? Now, few of us will admit that out loud. There's a reason why Paul, if you just kind of scan through Romans 8, you see some very frequent terms. The Spirit certainly is one. So is suffering. Because when suffering finds us, and it always does, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, it's at those times that we actually wonder, is God really for me? Because this hurts. And even when we read, okay, God has called me, God has adopted me, God has rescued me, God has blessed me, when things get hard, God's love and God's sovereignty or control over all things are the first things we question. I don't, I, if God was for me, I mean, if God, if God loved me, if God was actually powerful, would he really allow this to happen? If you've never said that or felt that, uh, you are a godly, godly person. Because that has certainly crossed my mind many times in my life. Man, are you really for me, God? Because this, like, why, we, why this? At our three-strand conference this week, it was very timely. God does this. Uh, listen to a great speaker, Kyle Strobel, son of Lee Strobel, the apologist. And he wrote a great book called The Way of the Dragon, The Way of the Lamb. I was reminded as he spoke of Israel's time in the wilderness, which is a large time. You can read in the book of Numbers and, and um, just kind of their wandering and the different events that happened through the Pentateuch. But in Numbers chapter 20, um, which is I'll familiarize with it a little bit. So Moses had a sister named Miriam. Miriam has just died. And she's been, you know, just kind of the, the matriarch of the family and just a very powerful leader and help to Moses. And so he's hurting probably, but the people begin to complain again. 
because the people are taken to a place and there's no water. The place eventually is called Meribah, which is a place of strife or complaining. And we remember this scene, for those who are familiar with uh, the wilderness wandering, we remember this scene mainly because this is where Moses kind of loses it. And he begins to vent his anger, and he's like, you guys are horrible, and blah, blah, blah. And instead of speaking to the rock to get water, he smacks the rock with a stick. And even though water gets out, he has consequences because he disobeyed God. So that's how we remember Numbers 20, typically. Oh, yeah, that's where Moses screwed up. He didn't get to go to the promised land. But the way God often remembers it is about the people. In the Psalms, the Lord remembers this moment as a time when Israel hardened their hearts through complaint. A time in the wilderness where things got really difficult and hard. A time in the wilderness when they cried out to God and went, Are you really for us? Do you know if we look only to what we can see and what we can feel for assurance of God's love, you'll never, ever understand what it means to walk by faith in Christ. If you have to see it right now, that doesn't require faith. King David speaks about this time in Psalm 95. He says this, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. You're like, you guys probably remember singing a song like that, right? He says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as as at Meribah, the same place, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. They asked for more evidence, though they already had seen what I'd done. How do we not harden our hearts and begin to believe, oh, I don't know if God is for me when we find ourselves in the wilderness, when the Lord leads us into the wilderness? How do we fight the temptation to question whether God is for us or whether he's actually giving us his best? What David says seems to imply is that we remember the work of the Lord And we refuse to ask him for more proof than he's already given us. And what is the work of the Lord? Paul tells us in verse 32. If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's a very powerful verse, but you could read by it too quickly and not realizing what God is saying. Paul is saying, like, look, you want proof? We don't need any more proof than the cross. The cross is assurance of God's love for sinners who repent and believe. It's proof that God has given and is always giving us His best. Whether it appears or feels like that or not. God did not spare His own Son. For those who have children, just make it really personal. Can you imagine? 
If you were willing to give up your son, and that person says, I don't really know if he loved me. God decided to define his story that way. As a God of loss. A God of sacrifice. A God of love. God did not spare his own son, but what did he do? He delivered up his only begotten son to die for us. God could not be for us more. He couldn't be. He didn't withhold his most valuable possession. How many people would think that way, right? As we're in our homes and a fire hits, what, what are you worried about? Your children. Maybe your dog, right? But if you have to choose, Frisky's dying and the kids are living, right? What is most valuable? I could lose it all. I could lose my house. I could lose my car. I could lose my job, but not my family. And yet God delivered up his only begotten son for us. And if he didn't withhold his most valuable possession, then why would you not believe he is for you now? I found an interesting statement by Tim Keller. He said, if you believe, if you say, I believe in God, I trusted God and he didn't come through, then you only trusted God to meet your agenda. Uh-oh. Are we going to be able to trust God and believe that he is for us when there's no water, when things are dry. Now, where do we look? To the cross. Okay, I know you're always giving us our best because you already gave us your best. So perhaps when life gets hard and when suffering finds me, when I like to say when, when life falls upon me, okay, maybe I can still... Believe that God is for me according to his good purposes. Even though it gets hard from the outside, I, I, I can believe. Okay, but what about when you fall in life or when you fail? That's a whole other world, right? Is God for me when I'm not for him? Ooh. Paul predicts your question in verses 33 and 34. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's chosen sons and daughters? It is God who justifies. God who declares innocent. God is the judge. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Paul is continuing to give proof that actually God is for us even despite us. I read something that Pastor John MacArthur said recently. He said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. So Paul's speaking about this who. He talks about a who several times. Who stands to contend me? Who is accusing you? Who is there telling you about your guilt and about your flaws and your mistakes and your failures and your shortcomings and let's be honest pretend as we may we're all pretty much a spiritual mess we are some of you fake it really well some of you don't even try i think the truth is we're all a spiritual mess 
Without fail, then, accusations are going to come. Because you know that you aren't perfect, but worse than that, you're like so imperfect. You're like, okay. And I say that about myself as well. I'm not like, but I figured it out. One day when you're a pastor, you'll know. No, I am screwed up as the rest of us. So what happens when we know that secretly? Like maybe no one else knows. We can kind of keep, but we know accusations start to come. Even to those who are in Christ, even to those who know they're in Christ, accusations come. I'm not good enough is pretty much what the summary is. Not good enough. One of these voices is the enemy, the devil. In Romans 12, I'm sorry, Revelation 12, he's actually called the accuser of the brethren. The accuser of the brothers and sisters. He not only accuses, in Genesis 3, man and woman, he accuses God himself. He's a liar. Jesus describes him as the father of lies. And he never ceases to speak lies about who you are, even in Christ, and who God is. If you remember in Genesis 3, that's what he starts with. Oh, God didn't. Oh, God's holding. No, God's not like that. God didn't do that. God's holding out on you. You can't trust him. He's not really for you. And we listen. The accuser's been around a long time, and although he doesn't have omniscience, he can't see everything, know everything, he has watched humanity for a long time. He knows just the right things to say. The accuser is the proudest of the proud. Pride is, in fact, his greatest weapon. In his epistle... Right after reminding us that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, the Apostle Peter describes him as a, a roar, the devil as a roaring lion. He's like, God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud, and the devil's roaring around looking for someone to devour. And you're like, why are those two connected? And the reason why, because he devours is through pride. He tempts us towards pride. He wants to dismantle our trust in God by saying things like, how can you possibly believe in a God who allows such suffering? But he's worse than that. Like that question makes you go, yeah, what kind of God is that? That's pride. I shouldn't be suffering. God must not be good. So now who's judging who? It's pride. But it's goes further. He, isn't, he, he wants to take our eyes off of God and he wants them squarely on ourselves. And what that looks like sometimes is questions like, why would you ever believe that God would love you when you're such a screw-up failure? So instead of looking at God, you look at yourself, which won't take long to go, yeah, that's pretty messy. And why would God love me? And the accuser would say, yeah, that's right. And here's the scary part. That's not the only accusing voice in our lives. You have two others, the world and our flesh. The world can make you feel like a failure when you don't meet its expectations. But let's be honest, that pales in comparison to your own self-condemnation. Your sense of failure when you don't meet your own expectations, which often are much higher than God's himself. 
So, accusing from within, from without, like, wow, failure, failure, you're not good enough. And what does Paul say? Who, who can bring a charge? Who can condemn? Now, he's already answered that in Romans 8, 1. The question, therefore, is rhetorical because the answer is obvious. And here's the answer. No one! Paul has already said, there's one judge with the right to accuse. Only one. And guess what? He has declared his chosen children innocent through faith in Jesus Christ. So Satan has no right to condemn you. The world has no right to condemn you. And guess what? You have no right to condemn you. No one can. To try and do that is to take the place of God, who has declared where innocence and forgiveness is found. So when accusations come from the enemy or from the world or even from your own self, we need not defend ourselves. You know what? You may as well agree with them because they're probably right. The only one who truly has been sinned against and truly has the right to condemn is the judge, and he has spoken grace. He has spoken mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. God was the judge who was sinned against, and God was the judge who took the punishment for the guilty, for those who rebelled against his rule, that he might, as Romans later describe him, to be just and the justifier, for him to do it all. We did everything wrong and did nothing right, and God did nothing wrong, and yet he made everything right through his own sacrifice of his own son. So who can condemn us? Who could bring a charge? No one. For those who are in Christ. If my goodness were the ground of my acceptance, I would be very tempted to defend myself. And so when accusations come, you must fight the temptations to say some things. You must not say, well, I'll do better tomorrow. You won't. Right? Don't we do that? Well, I was really a screw-up today, but I'll, be, I'll do better tomorrow. And if you don't, condemnation will come again, right? Did you know that's not the ground for your acceptance? That's the, that's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus saves failures, and screw-ups like us. And by grace, He patiently changes us to look more like Him. So we don't say, I'll do better tomorrow. You won't. You shouldn't say, well, wait, I'm not that bad. No, you are. You are, and so am I. You're worse. We must not be tempted to say when the accusation comes, well, it's not that big a deal. It is. This is the proof that it's a big deal. Paul gives us our answer. It's right there. You want to respond to the accusations? Here's what you say. Jesus died. What does that mean? If I died with him, I am forgiven. My sin is cleansed. My guilt is removed. What do I say when the accusation? Oh, he didn't just die. He rose again, and I'm accepted. I'm accepted. And Jesus didn't just 
raised from the dead. He is now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. And so I know I am kept. The king is keeping me. And so I don't need to worry about keeping myself. Because I didn't save myself. Jesus did. And he loses no one. And more than that, what does it say? Jesus hasn't stopped talking about you to his father. He is interceding for us. He is constantly saying and talking to God the Father. See the one who's charged, the one being accused? Yeah, you gave that one to me. And I died for him. And I shed my blood for him. And I bore your wrath for him. I did it all. So Father, send your spirit to help him. Constantly. Who can condemn? No one. For those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. God is for us. There is no one to condemn those who repent and believe. But Paul asks a final question that takes us to the heart of what it means, I think, to be in Christ. To be in Christ and to be loved. In Romans 8, 35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he clarifies even more. Shall tribulation? It's interesting who and tribulation are connected. Who and distress. Who like people causing these things perhaps. Not just circumstances. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. Now, what's the no to? No is to who shall separate us? Shall these things separate us? There's your answer. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's interesting because I like it. Paul gives us like, you know, 14 different things because we're so, well, what about this? He's like, okay, height, depth, width, breadth, like he like names as many things as he can to basically say nothing. Nothing can separate you. Now, The question he asks, obviously, is there anything that can separate us from God's love? And we must be careful not to misread the question. I say that because the question is not who can separate me from my love for Christ. See the difference? If we're honest, my love for Christ, my love for God is disrupted quite easily by just about anything. I'm distracted from faithfulness to the Lord by the dumbest things in this world. Not even like horrible things. Certainly tribulation and distress... Persecution, those things can do a, a work on me. They trouble me. They can, pain really unsettles all of us, whatever form it comes. But my love for Christ can be separated by much less. 
It doesn't even require something as dramatic as persecution. It could simply be laziness and distraction. So if we're talking about my love for Christ, I'll tell you right now, um, if I'm saved by the quality of my love for Christ, the consistency of my love for Christ, um, I'm going to feel like there's singe marks already coming up my legs because I don't have much hope. But that's not the question. What can separate us from the love of God? You see, we are saved by God's love for us, not by our love for God. We are saved by God's love for us, not our love for God. This is what Paul is trying to emphasize in Romans 8, that God did everything and continues to do everything. And our response, that generates a response in us that is love because we're controlled by his love, but it's a responsive Nothing can separate us from God's love for us in Christ. Paul says that God's love is relentless, it's unstoppable. His list is so comprehensive, it includes everything past, present, future, visible, invisible, even death. And he calls us more than conquerors. That's right, Christian. You're more than a conqueror. Did you know that? You're like, I don't even know what that means. Like conqueror with a cape on or something. Like I'm a conqueror, more than a conqueror. And that's not the only time that's used. If you look in the book of Revelation, uh, it's in the first two or three chapters. Um, I don't even know where I'm at now. No, no. Why am I in this? I don't even know. Where did Romans 2 come from? All right, there we go. He who has a ear, let him hear that the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I, 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 I want to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. i got to be a conqueror. says it again. He who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And I could give you like six more. To the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. And those of us who don't fear very powerful go, what am I going to do because I don't feel like a conqueror? I mean, being a conqueror sounds like you're powerful. How do I become the one who conquers? I want to be the one who conquers. The one who gets to live with God in eternity. And the temptation would be like, okay, I got, I got to be strong. God says I'm a conqueror, I'm going to be a conqueror. And then life hits us or we hit life. Life falls on us or we fall in life. And we go, well, how, how am I going to be the one who's powerful when I feel so powerless? How exactly do we tap into this power, especially when things are so hard? Do I just pretend to be strong? Do I, do I hide my doubts? Do I cover my sin? Do I dismiss my sorrow? And just, I'm just not going to be sad about that because it's not that terrible. So the verse read this morning prior to the sermon, I think, gives us insight into the secret of Christian power. This is much what the study we did with Three Strand this week uh, focused on, just happened to be the same experience. So Paul talking about a thorn in the flesh, right? If you read these verses carefully, it's really interesting. He had some great revelations of some kind that could lend him to be prideful. and be like, yeah, that's right, I 
went to the third heaven and saw all kinds of things, right? And used that as kind of leverage to gain followers or whatever. And so he got, was given a gift of a thorn in the flesh to keep him from doing that. The messenger of Satan was given to him, thank you, Lord, to keep him from being conceited. Three times he pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave him. So he's like, I don't want this, whatever it might have been. There's scholars who argue what it is. But it is hurting him. It is hindering him in his view. And he asked the Lord multiple times to take it away. This is what God said to him. My grace is sufficient for you. For what? There it is. My power is made perfect in weakness. That can't be a more anti-American statement that you could find, right? Therefore, knowing that, knowing what Jesus said, that power is made perfect in weakness, I'm going to boast more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. Because why? When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now, interestingly, Paul has already told us in Romans 8, if you read it carefully, how weak we actually are, but it doesn't seem like that. We're so excited about the blessings God's given us, but like if you look at the other side, it's like, yeah, you realize how weak you are? Like, you can't free yourself from condemnation. You can't obey if you wanted to. He says, you don't have the power to fix your broken bodies. He says, you don't even have the power to pray right. Remember that? The Spirit's interceding us because we don't even know how to pray. Before these last verses of Romans, he has basically told us, like, you are not powerful. You are not powerful. You are not powerful. He's like, we are more than conquerors. Like, wait, wait, what? Because we're not talking about power that comes from us. We're talking about power that comes from him. And the path to that power is, guess what? To embrace our powerlessness. Christ's power rests upon us when we release control to him. And what does that mean practically? It means simply we surrender the need to know sometimes, the need to have, the need to be right, the need to feel certain things, the need to control or get my way. That's what it means. And when you surrender that to the Lord, you are suddenly filled with the power of Christ that rests on you. And with that comes peace, and with that comes strength, and with that even comes joy. Confessing our struggles, admitting our faults, facing our doubts, embracing our weaknesses, that actually doesn't separate us from Christ. On the contrary, that actually draws us closer to Him. That's what it actually means to fail in or fall into Christ. I'll close simply with an interesting quote I found by C.S. Lewis, which I don't even know where it's from. Maybe it's not even C.S. Lewis. Pretty sure it is. But it's kind of a larger quote. You've got to listen to it carefully because it can be confusing. But it really helped me to understand what Romans 8 is talking about. He says, Now we cannot discover our failure to keep God's law except by trying our very hardest and then failing. Unless we really try, 
whatever we say there will always be at the back of our minds the idea that if we try harder next time, we'll succeed in being completely good. Thus, in one sense, the road back to God is a road of moral effort, of trying harder and harder. But in another sense, it is not trying that is ever going to bring us home. All this trying leads us to the vital moment of which we turn to God and say, you must do this. I can't. That's Romans 8. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. To be in Christ is to perpetually say to Christ, you must do this. I can't. And you know what his response is? I will. And it's finished. It's finished. He has done it. And so we can embrace what we're not able to do as long as we declare, Lord, you can do it. That is what it means to be in Christ. And I pray that you will understand the gospel that way and realize that all of your effort is just going to prove one thing. You need Jesus because you're going to fall short. And it's okay. He's planned for your failure. That's what the gospel tells us. Glory be to him. Let's pray.